Welcome back to Left Anchor. I'm Alexi the Greek. And I'm Ryan Cooper. Um, welcoming our, our second in-studio guest, uh, doctoral candidate uh, Chelsea Chamberlain, um, who is a, a, a histor- history uh, PhD student at the University of Pennsylvania um, and author of an article called Challenging Custodialism. A, a, a long secondary title, which I don't remember, but you can explain it to us. <laughs> I do, I do, I do appreciate the double entendre though in the title. Yeah. Um, the big accomplishment was my advisor hates those and will <laughs> smack any of them down. And this one was just subtle enough that she let it fly. So I'm proud of nice, that one. Nice, nice. You threaded the needle. Uh-huh. Well done. Yeah. Anyway, uh, Chelsea also happens to be my my partner in the interests of full disclosure and transparency and uh, journalistic ethics. <laughs> um, but yeah, this, this makes art- it a very special interview. I love this. Exactly. <laughs> the article is you know it's it's about a, a, a disability studies. We'll we'll get into it for sure, and 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 uh, also you know the broader c- questions and context of disability in this country. But um, anyway, uh, welcome to the show, Chelsea. Thank you. Glad to be here. And I hope that no one can hear the dog whining in the other room. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, he's very jealous he doesn't get to be on the podcast. He's a needy one. Well, Well, if he publishes an article, he can come on the podcast. That's fair. I think that's totally fair. But, you know, we on Left Anchor, we love our animals. And so whiny or not. I mean, I'm pretty whiny and Coops loves me anyway. That's true. (laughs) Chelsea has seen it. She knows that I'm okay. Not that you're whiny. Ryan loves you. (laughs) Sure, sure, sure. I'll let that slide. Um, All right, Ryan, start grilling her. Get down to it. Yeah. uh, So, madam. Mm -hmm. um, So the the article is about... um, the the it's an institution called Elwin, um, and uh, you know kind of, it's kind of a narrative for the most part. But you got some some you know theoretical and and uh, you know some ideological stuff in there as well. But tell us what was Elwin in the time that you were uh, you're you're talking about here. Right. And so that time is the long progressive era. I'm looking at 1880 to 1920, roughly, in kind of my whole project. This article focuses on the first decade of the 1900s. And uh, the full name of the place is the Pennsylvania Training School for Feeble-Minded Children at Elwyn. And so we call it Elwyn for short. Um, and so it was this large institution. It was founded in the 1850s as a quote unquote school. The idea being that they were going to take children who couldn't get along in public schools, educate them and send them back to their families, able to work, able to live in society. Um, but that vision declined really quickly. And instead it became a place that although they continue to call themselves a school intended to take children or adolescents and train them to work for the purpose of the institution to offset the cost of their own care. The idea that they, the economy was becoming modern and these were people whose bodies and minds could not function productively in a modern economy. Um, and on top of that, because of this belief in hereditarianism, they would reproduce and have more people and create more people who could not function in a modern economy. So the best thing to do was to separate them, have them live in a separate community for life where they could 
be trained in work they were capable of and kind of be among their kind and kept apart from each other so they wouldn't reproduce. Yeah, that it strikes me. Tell me. Go ahead. Tell me, Chelsea, this strikes me kind, kind of like, uh, you know, how George W. Bush had cons- compassionate conservatism. This strikes me as like, quote unquote, compassionate eugenic ideology. Yeah, I mean, that's, <laughs> is, that, is, that fa- is that fair? Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't say that. I, I guess that's part of kind of my research agenda is to try and take a lot of these experts when they're talking to each other or publishing for the public or for politicians, they're like really cruel in the language they use. And that's what's gotten the most attention. And I'm really fascinated by the seeming contradiction that people who would say such cruel things about disabled people would then also spend their careers living with and among them and sometimes exhibit tenderness and love and care for those people. And so Mm. the ideology certainly uh, wasn't compassionate in terms of seeing a long-term place for disabled people in society, but was they accepted it as a a given, like, well, we can't just let these people die. Or despite what some politicians suggested, we can't exterminate these people. We are too sophisticated and like too modern for that. And so this, yeah, 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 too progressive for that. And so this is the alternative they come up with and they do try and, you know, they even use the language of atonement. Like it's, it sucks that we have to do this, but we do. And so institutions should be as pleasant as possible to atone for that fact. And then where it all falls apart is, but they also want those institutions to be really efficient. And as soon as you start to value efficiency, you cease to value the people who you're trying to render efficient. Yeah. Absolutely. That that was definitely a thought I had going through this. Like, man, this guy's a real bastard. But compared to Hitler. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's kind of the, how you sum up a, like American eugenics. Um, they get they get to bear some of the blame for Hitler because the Germans took so many of their model legislation from American eugenicists. But um, right. there was kind of a different baseline idea of, you know, they had not reached the point of saying like extermination as the goal, although it was often the, kind of the side effect of institutionalization because disease and cruelty were so rampant. Yeah. Sure. And, and um, yeah, as you talk about, there are a lot of, you know, forced sterilizations and stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but the... This custodialism uh, framework, uh, you you have a lot of interesting stuff in there about this fellow, uh, Martin Barr. Yeah. That's his name. superintendent. He was a superintendent for like 30 years. And he had this very ideological belief that, you know, as you say, uh, the what Elwin should be doing was like taking these people and like getting them away from the, you know, the body politics, so to speak. So they don't infect and they don't spread their bad genes. Um, and he had a number of like tricks to, to like try to keep his hands on, uh, people that were like somewhat successful and sometimes not. Right. Can you tell us about that? Right. Yeah. So the whole point of the article is to try and, point out where a lot of lines were blurry and that Barr was someone who in all of his cruelty, like plenty of it was bluster and that he was kind of an overwhelmed administrator who, you know, a lot of the ways that he tried to improve life at the institution or make it seem worthwhile was an act of appeasement for the residents who were living there and 
who were, there were a lot of them and they (laughs) ran away frequently and they could get away with that and they could, um, you know, be violent towards staff. And so he wanted to reduce that as much as possible. And then he was also dealing with families who, um, Elwin was unique from the type of institutions a lot of people have looked at in that it was semi-private. And so legal commitment was not a factor for people who were living at Elwin. They hadn't been committed there. They were technically voluntary. And um, so he was dealing a lot with families who had sent their children there and could legally remove them at any time if they were unhappy with their care. And of course, all of that is fuzzy because a lot of them don't know that they could take their child home. But um, so he he does a lot to have to compromise with families who are involved and demanding. Um, he whole, he organizes these really over the top Christmas plays. They, they, they perform like dozens of times every year. Um, they have dancing bears and hypnotists and a lot of activities both on the campus. And then, um, summer vacation was a thing for not everyone who lived there, but a fair number of them who were able to go home for the summer, or if they stayed, they scheduled all these excursions to go out. They could go to the circus and the radio, uh, the rodeo. And, um, you know, so there was a certain social calendar to try and mark the seasons and passage of time and keep people somewhat contented, um, make it so they could keep some of the doors unlocked. Um, you know, not only because I think he did want people to have he didn't want it to be a hellhole um, or only a hellhole. And um, it was an effort at that. And it was also a way to create kind of structures of participation that could be taken away as a punishment for people who were not compliant, who weren't following the rules. They could have those entertainments and trips taken away. So they were a privilege that functioned as a form of discipline as well in the institution. Right. I don't, I don't want to diminish the, the discipline and, and, um, and punishment and the, the physical abuse that, that you saw that was documented. Um, but, uh, you slipped in there dancing bears. Yeah. I, and I just want to take note <laughs> that, that, that was, uh, because I don't see, we don't have the dancing bears anymore. And I just, uh, is there, did you do any research about how we can get the dancing bears back? I feel like that is, um, that is something that is, it's, it's been too long. I'll make sure and track that down uh, when it comes to the book. I'll make sure I bring answers. I appreciate that. Dancing bear question. I mean, it is side little side note. It is true that a lot of institutions had pretty large zoos. So some there was an institution in Massachusetts. They had I don't think it danced, but they did have a bear um, in an enclosure and a bunch of you know there were cows and goats for kind of agricultural production, but then there were also like petting zoo sure. situations with the idea of sensory education. People could go and pet different textures of animals and learn about them through kind of hands-on lessons. Right. This is really interesting to me just because the picture that's being painted, as you say, and as Ryan said, not Hitler, like this does really seem like to be a, a perversion of progressive thinking because it seems like the motives are, are mixed, right? Like, of course, you have the, the authoritarian and pa- patriarchal control and punishment and, and regimenting of everything. But like this idea that, um, you know, the experts know, uh, better than, you know, these people who are so-called feeble-minded and they can somehow create a 
kind of uh, refuge and, and, and like flourishing for, for these people apart from regular society. So it, it, it seems interesting there. Um, as far as you could tell, the superintendent's uh, motivations, uh, you know, what, what did you research about the motivations of him or the institution? Uh, obviously, was there a financial incentive? Like the, the average stay was 10 years. Is that, is that something that he tried to get people to stay as long as possible? Like what, as far as you can tell, were the, were the overall goals? Um, yeah. So I think it's easier for me to maybe talk about broadly the goals of kind of him and all of his colleagues that what, what did it mean to establish these institutions across the country at this time? I would say like there, a lot of these superintendents, they're also physicians. And so they're, they're not getting rich as superintendents of these institutions. They're always fighting for more money from the state and like scraping together budgets. Um, but they are hoping for a certain amount of prestige to be gathered from, you know, they view the people in these institutions as like human research material. And so, um, they do have this idea that if they, they gather enough people and gather enough data and research about these people, they're going to make it as kind of scientific experts mm. and it's the gotcha. progressive era. Yeah. And so everyone wants to be an expert and that's the best thing you can be. And they want to, you know, if they can be the one to prove the kind of um, hereditary transmission of unit characteristics, if they can prove Mendelianism, you know, like then they'll have made it. I think that's a driving goal. I do also gotcha. think um, we have to think of them as they're, they are u- utopians in a sense. Like they are really hopeful people. They're also really frightened people. <laughs> they're frightened of kind of these others. Um, but I think that it's much more kind of compelling and important for us kind of in the in the present why we should care about this history to study them not as hateful people because then that makes them different from us but to think of them as hopeful people who really believed that they were doing something good and to use that as a reminder that we can be trying to do something really really great and believe that it's great and if the future we're trying to create leaves some people out of it those people are going to suffer as we try and bring that future into existence and that's what they did. That's the end of the preview, folks. If you want to hear the whole episode, you can go to patreon.com slash left anchor. Thanks for listening.